Hello, welcome to another We're All Screwed Up podcast. Last week we talked about how the brain works and some general programming stuff. This week I want to talk to you about how we learn and how we experience stuff. According to Google, when you do a search, we experience approximately 7,323,228 minutes by the time we're 14 years old. There's no way you're going to remember all of them. So we don't. Our brain stores information as a series of connected meaning. It looks at what does this information mean? Is it relevant? Do I need to remember it for some future purpose? And what does it relate to? So we don't store information as absolute points of data. We, we just simply couldn't, even though our brains have a huge capacity that we can't even measure. We can't possibly remember every single thing that happens in our life. So we remember those events by the meaning that happens in them, namely by the emotion that's attributed to the event. This is often why when you show people photographs from holidays you've been on, it's not at all interesting to them because what you're doing when you look at a photograph is you're remembering the sights and sounds and smells and the experience of being in that moment. And a photo can't possibly represent all of that. And it certainly doesn't represent it when you show it to somebody else. So we remember things based on what do we need to remember. Now, we talked last week about the way the brain develops. So you start developing grey matter, where you can start really making these connections from about seven years old and onwards. And actually, when you hit adolescence, your brain starts just clearing stuff up because you've got too much junk. So it starts losing stuff that you don't need to keep. And then what happens by the time you hit age 19 to 25, you can start adding things to this massive network, this massive spider web of significant events with a spider in the middle and all the pings and connections that are fired off. And actually, this is one of the reasons why when people have a brain injury or they have dementia of some sort, it's the emotional stuff that you see brings them back to life, brings uh, memories back to life, because our brain is triggered by meaning in memories, not by absolute facts. And, and this is important. It's not just important to help you understand why stuff can cause you a problem, why some people react more significantly to some things than others. It's not just important in terms of uh, recognising how your brain is switched off and triggered by events. But it's also important in terms of how you make a choice to consolidate these events. So as you go through your adult life, your brain is constantly consolidating everything that you've learned as you've gone through your day. It does that in the sleep cycle. So the REM sleep, the rapid eye movement sleep part of your sleep cycle is where your brain does the filing. In the standard eight hour sleep cycle, there is two hours of REM sleep and six hours of deep sleep. In the six hours of deep sleep, all the repair stuff is done. Your brain's recharged, your body's repaired, all the really important stuff is done. In the two hours of REM sleep, your brain is taking everything that's happened in your day and it's trying to decide, does it need to keep it? Does it need to update something in your big brain database so that you'll be able to make use of it in the future? 
it's like having a therapist in your head. In fact, they have found that they can help people resolve trauma, phobias and things like that by manipulating images in that REM sleep. It's a really powerful part of our brain cleansing process. It's also the reason why if you're not getting quality of sleep, it can affect your ability to think straight and it can affect your emotional response to things because without enough of your cognitive brain, everything becomes just a series of fired off triggers related to stuff that's happened before. So your brain is used to taking the mass of information that you see through your day and deciding what to do with it. Look around the room that you're in now. If you have somebody else near you, I want you to ask them to look around the room or maybe do it later. See how what they pick out is different from what you pick out if you were to describe the room. We all have our own stuff. We all have our own things that we notice. We all have our own triggers. And so we learn as we're children. We learn so we can stay safe as adults. We learn those important things, the meaning, the stuff with emotion from as we grow up. We apply it to our day-to-day -day adult life, but we also update that learning as we go along. Your brain doesn't keep a record of those updates. It's just constantly rewriting stuff. This is why very often we judge our younger versions of ourselves quite harshly. I should have known better if only I'd responded that way or not responded that way or done that. This belief that we can time travel comes from the fact that our brain is constantly updating. What do I mean by belief in time travel? Should have, could have, would have, if only I had, right? We all do it. We all spin on things and rework things and think about, oh, if I'd not said that, if I'd only said that. It's a belief that we can possibly know what would have happened if we'd done something different. And the reason we believe we could know that is because we do know now, right? We know what happened and we know what the consequences are. And because our brain doesn't keep a track record of it, it replaced our previous knowledge like we always knew what was going to happen next. But here's the thing about time travel. Time travel is an interesting phenomenon. If you think about any time travel film you've ever seen, even Back to the Future, the first rule of time travel is if you go back and change things, you mess everything up. That's what we know about time travel. Going back has unforeseen consequences. You don't know how everything's connected. So you can't name a time travel film or a program or anything about time travel that doesn't have that inherent assumption that when we change things, other things are affected by it. And yet, when you sit there beating yourself up for the things that you should have, could have, wish you'd done, wish you hadn't done, you just assume that if you'd done it differently, everything would have been marvellous. <laughs> you know, it's like with anxiety, you expect everything to be terrible. With time travel, you think everything would have been marvellous. I'd have gone back and then this would have happened and that would have all been fantastic and none of the bad stuff would have happened. But that's not how time travel works, which, by the way, you can't even time travel, right? But let's assume you think you can or it's possible. Then I don't know, like even Doctor Who can't time travel without messing stuff up. Probably the closest to it, right? But, you know, who's not to know that all the problems weren't caused by Doctor Who time traveling in the first place? So here's the thing. You are always 
the only version of you you can be. You can't possibly know what any of the other possible outcomes would have been. So for a hundred different scenarios, there's the one that you lived out. There might be one or two that are better, but the rest of them could be way worse. You just don't know. So all you know is how things were. But you get lulled into this false sense of having some control over how things turned out because your brain learns how things turns out, replaces your memories and updates them when it does all the reconsolidation thing with all the other stuff. And then you thought I knew that all along and I deliberately (laughs) messed things up for myself. It's just not true. And it's all to do with the way the brain is wired and the way the brain learns. So we learn by doing. We don't learn by being told. This is why when your kids are young and you put hot food in front of them and you say, don't touch it, it's hot. The first thing they do, put the finger in, ouch. (laughs) Or put it in the mouth, ouch. We can't learn by what we're told. While we're children, we can't learn by what we're told because our brains don't have the capacity to make cognitive leaps. But as adults, we don't register things unless they've got some emotional content, unless they've got some meaning to us. And so, again, we have to learn by doing, by our own personal experiences. We tend to regard what other people say as not believable, not credible. How many times has somebody told you, you know, this is a really good program to watch or this is a really good book to read? And you're just like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) You know, you don't automatically go, oh, you know, they must be right. I must do that. I mean, sometimes you do, but but generally not, because we tend to kind of have our own model of the world, our own personal experiences and our own perceptions of how things work that come from our own personal experiences. So every time you do something, something new, and there's videos on YouTube you can watch on this, two neurons fire off and a pathway is physically created. This is what neuroplasticity is. Neuroplasticity is your brain growing and changing constantly. And you grow and change new pathways by consciously experiencing something, by repeatedly experiencing something to thicken those pathways. So there was an experiment done where they were looking at this and they took three groups of people. The first group of people had to spend 10 minutes a day rehearsing the piano. So they were just playing scales on the piano, 10 minutes a day for a week. The second group of people were rehearsing the scales on the piano, but in their head, they weren't touching a piano at all. They were just imagining that for 10 minutes a day, for a week, they just sat there and went on the piano. The third group of people was a control group. They didn't do anything with the piano at all. They did an MRI scan of their brains at the start and at the end of the week. The people who were physically practicing the piano and the people who were mentally rehearsing the piano had the same changes in their brain patterns, increased connections in their brain patterns. So whether they physically did it or they did it mentally, it still changed their brain because they were rehearsing and experiencing it. The same experiment or a similar experiment was done with basketball players, Um, improving the the shooting of the hoops. And actually, the great thing about mentally rehearsing something is you don't mess it up quite so much, right? So sometimes it can be better. So mentally rehearsing, physically rehearsing, doing anything repetitively creates and reinforces 
the pathways in your brain and thickens them. How do you create an experience when you're not doing something? Well, the way thinking doesn't change your brain very much. It doesn't release any of the good drugs. It doesn't really change very much. Experiencing is what changes your brain, actually interacting in some way. So if you want to force an experience, if you want to be very deliberate and conscious about what your brain's going to learn, then what you have to do is you have to force the experience. So you write it down or you verbalize it, you record it out loud. You do something active to get your brain to lock in the details. Another experiment that was done took um, 20 students and they were all shown a relatively short video. And they were all asked to write down 10, 10 facts about this short video. Half of the people folded the paper up, stuck it in their pocket. The other half destroyed the piece of paper. Sometime later, they changed a number of details in the video and they asked everybody to spot the difference. The ones that had written down and folded the paper up in their pocket even without referring to the paper, notice more differences. This is called reconsolidation theory. Reconsolidation theory is about your brain learning. Reconsolidation theory is what your brain does in REM sleep, where it's filing everything in the day and putting it into the context of your big brain and losing the things that are not relevant, updating the things that are relevant and creating new pathways for the new experiences. So this is a process that will be happening irrespective of whether you interact with it or not. And that's the key thing to remember. Your brain is learning and experiencing even outside of your choice. It's just a normal way that our brains learn. So the brain doesn't actually care whether it's learning something good or bad. It just likes you to do things repetitively. Your brain releases a drug called dopamine. Every time you do something the same way, not something good, not something bad, just something you've done before. It likes you to do things the same way. And it's a drug. Dopamine and endorphins that you get after you've done exercise were actually used to develop heroin. Right. They were used as the chemical basis for heroin. They're good drugs that your brain naturally releases. So your brain naturally releases a drug when you travel one of these existing pathways. Now, every time you travel a pathway in your brain, it gets thicker and thicker, and it eventually becomes a lightning pathway where it's super easy to do it without any conscious thought whatsoever. And those lightning pathways give you a good dose of drugs because your brain wants you to do the same things over and over again. My theory as to why we have dopamine is it comes from the caveman days where you had to do really rubbish things that were absolutely critical for survival. So your brain will give you this drug and you'll be like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing. And then you're doing it going, oh, I hate this. Why am I doing this again? So the drugs make you do it. It's like with endorphins, you know, you get them after exercise. And if you're anything like me, you kind of wish you could get them before the exercise because they make the exercise easier. <laughs> but that's not the way the brain works. What you do is you remember the buzz you got of the exercise, which makes it a little easier to do it next time. So these are good, natural drugs that our brain releases. And so if we want to take control of this, then we have to make some conscious choices about what our brain learns, what our brain rewards us for. 
And the easiest way to do this is to choose which pathways we're going to create or strengthen at the end of each day. So let's imagine you're taking dogs for a walk every day and you take them for a walk in this massive field. The dogs run wild, but you go around this big path that goes all the way around the edge of the field. And one day you're like, I'm in a rush. I'm just going to go straight to the middle of the field today. It's overgrown, it's bumpy, and it's a bit awkward, but you get to the other side and you're like, I have no idea why I've been doing that path all along. From now on, I'm going straight through the middle of the field. The next day, you do the same thing. You go straight through the middle of the field, but it's easier now, right? Because you've already done it before. And also, all the other dog walkers go, hey, look at that. There's a new path. And pretty soon, you've got this lovely path through the middle of the field, and the other one's grown over. So your brain is the same. So if you can force the experience of learning in your brain, then you will create pathways and you'll get your drugs for the stuff you want to get your drugs for. This is a really interesting experience when I had this conversation with like 12 year old kids and their parents are in the room. <laughs> this is how you get your drugs. Um, so first time you experience something new, your brain goes, oh, that's new. I don't like that. I'm not going to give you drugs for that. And effectively you go cold turkey. Cold turkey is a horrible, uncomfortable experience. Nobody wants that experience. So what you do is you focus on the stuff that's familiar the stuff that you've done before. And there's always loads of that stuff to find. And your brain then rewards you for that. And you just stay away from the new stuff because the new stuff feels super uncomfortable. You might have noticed this at work. You might have noticed at work when you had an old system, a really rubbish old system that you practically had to feed the hamsters to get it to work in the morning. And along comes, you know, a whizzy-bangy company. They design a fabulous new system. They put it in place. And the first thing that happens... Everybody complains because it doesn't do what the old one does. Right? And, and all that's happened is everybody's just been forced to go cold turkey. You've taken everything that was familiar, you put something totally new, and you expect them just to be able to use it. Now, because they feel so uncomfortable, they look for a reason why they feel uncomfortable, blame the new thing, right? And suddenly the new thing becomes the enemy, and then everybody gets frustrated because nobody's adopting it or using it, and they're saying they wish they had the old system, which everybody just complained about anyway. So the trick is, if you want to get your drugs back quickly, you have to make the things you want familiar, familiar quicker. So you have to deliberately and consciously choose to notice and choose to experience those things that you would like your brain to reward you for experiencing. Simplest way, at the end of every day, you look back on your day and you say, right, of everything that happened today, what would I like to remember? What would I like my drugs for? Maybe even you can think in six months time, if I wanted to remember anything about today, what would that be? And then you write it down. At least one thing a day. You can do more. You can um, verbalize it so you can record it. It doesn't have to be written down, but it does have to be an active process not a thought process. Now, some people, they do it as a family. They write these things down on a slip of paper, put it in a jar, New Year's Eve, open the jar, get this wave of all this wonderful stuff that you've had happen. Doesn't really matter. You can use it as an excuse to go to paper chase and get yourself a lovely little journal. But at the end of each day, say, of all the things I want my drugs for today, what's the one thing I'm going to write down? And you write it down. That locks it in. Now, some days it's really obvious and some days it's really going to be hard. 
But because we're doing this as a cognitive process, we're choosing to wire our brain, there's two things you need to make sure you do. The first thing is, you can only get drugs for something you do, not something you don't do. So if you're trying to train a puppy, you can't praise a puppy for not weeing on the carpet. You can only praise it for weeing on the grass where it's supposed to. So your brain's the same without the weeing. Right? You can only get drugs for something you do, not something you don't do. So you need to find a way to write it down as a positive, a positive evidence. So instead of didn't feel anxious, which might be a great thing, felt calmer, didn't get mad, dealt with it better, didn't worry so much, stayed distracted. Doesn't really matter what it is. It doesn't matter how tricky it is to find the right wording. Your goal is to program your brain. So you should make sure you always write down what you did not what you didn't do. In experiments, and, and the poor little rats always get experimented on, but what they had was rats that could press a button to get dopamine um, from a dispenser, and then they had a pile of food, and the rats literally starved to death for pressing the button to get the dopamine. It's a really powerful drug. It's a really powerful motivator, but we can deliberately make it happen. So first thing is, at the end of every day, you write down at least one thing that you'd like to remember, that you'd like these pathways for, and make sure it's locked in as a positive evidence-based thing that your brain can recognize you actually doing as opposed to the absence of something. The second thing is we tend to be fairly negative people. We always look for the things that are wrong. So even when we're looking for positives, we tend to do it in a yeah, but way. You know, I was feeling super anxious before I did this, but then I calmed down a lot quicker than I normally would. And that's great, you know, calming down quick is great. However, if you think of this as two pathways, you have this really thick, well-trodden pathway in your brain for feeling anxious. And you have a new, scrawny, pathetic one for calming down quicker. If you thicken both of them, it's pointless. You lose the effect. So when you write your stuff down, write down what you did, not what you didn't do, and only the thing that you'd like your brain to remember in six months' time. That way, you will create the pathways, you will thicken the pathways, and you will get your drugs quicker each time you travel those pathways. It's a great way of breaking a habit. It's a great way of starting a new habit. And it's a great way of finding the good in a moment, in every day, and, or even big things. Eventually, learning to do this allows you to take the positives out of even some of the most significant things. So getting in the habit of writing this stuff down. Now, some days, you're going to have really big stuff happening. And it's going to be really obvious what you can take as a positive out of it. Some days are going to be really, really rubbish and you're going to struggle. And some days are going to be really quiet and you're going to struggle just as much. On those days, more than any other day, you find something to write down. And what you do is you chunk down till you find the smallest possible units that you can find to write down. What I mean by that is it might be made a really nice cup of coffee. It might be even got out of bed. And that sounds a bit sad and it sounds a bit pathetic. However, if you wanted to remember, if you've had a really rubbish day and you want your brain to give you drugs for that, you don't want it to give you drugs for it being a rubbish day. You want to give you drugs for the fact that you managed to get out of bed despite all of that stuff going on. And then next time you get out of bed, your brain wags its metaphorical tail and gives you the drugs. Because the first time you do something new, no drugs, it takes them away. But the second time, if you've noticed, it's going, oh, there's that thing again. 
And by the third time, it's going, yeah, yeah, this is what we do down here. Have your drugs for us. Right? So it's just a mechanical process of forcing it. Now, if you really can't find anything, do something. <laughs> it really doesn't matter. Walk around the house, you know, go and get a breath of fresh air. Do something. And then that's the thing you write down. You're not ignoring the other stuff. You're just choosing not to lock it in. You're just choosing not to keep it. Only keep the stuff that you want to keep. So remember that our brain learns by experience. This is neuroplasticity in action. It physically learns. And it will do that irrespective of whether it's a good or a bad experience. It has no filter. It'll just learn by repetition. So you have the opportunity in each day to choose to tell your brain what you want it to remember. And the way you do that is you force it to be an experience by writing it down or by recording it or something like that. And by that way, no matter how your life's going, you'll be able to find the positives in every moment and program your brain to reward you for each of those moments that happen. Thank you for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.